come before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our dear God, we do thank Thee that we are found in this place this evening. We thank Thee, Lord, that we are before Thine awesome throne. And Lord, that Thou changest not. We thank Thee, Lord, that Thou knowest our every need, and Thou wilt supply it. We thank Thee for Thy long-suffering and patience with us. And we thank Thee for Thy word of truth. We pray as we open it this evening, Thou wilt speak to us. Feed and nourish our souls. Help us, Lord, on our Christian journey. O Lord, bless the singing of praise to Thee. May it be from our hearts and with our understanding and the reading of Thy word. May all be done for Thy glory. We ask it in our Saviour's name. Amen. So our opening hymn is number 65. Hymn number 65. The Lord is King. Lift up Thy voice, O earth, and all ye heavens rejoice.
of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. Ecclesiastes, written, of course, by Solomon, King Solomon, chapter 8. We're beginning to read from verse 16, reading into chapter 9. Verse 16. When I applied mine heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes, then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, further, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished, neither have they any more a portion for ever in anything that is done under the sun. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity. For this is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time, when it falleth suddenly upon them. May the Lord bless to us that reading from his word. We're going to sing again. Our next hymn is number 146. Hymn number 146. Praise him, praise him, Jesus, our blessed Redeemer.
bow in thine awesome and holy presence. O Lord, we marvel that thou hast adopted us as children into thine ever-glorious and eternal heavenly family. O Lord, we marvel at such things, that the God of all the earth, the God who has displayed his wonders throughout the created order, in the tiniest detail to the farthest star, O Lord, the expanse of the heavens we can scarcely take in. It overwhelms us with the magnitude of thy power, and Lord, the wonder of this created world. And Lord, we do uh, thank thee that thou hast given us a right understanding of our place in this life, that we were made in the image of the living God, that we were made and designed for fellowship with our heavenly Father. And Lord, all our woes and problems are because we uh, rejected this uh, arrangement. Oh Lord, we went our own way. We thought we knew better. We abandoned the very God who made us. Oh Lord, how unreasonable, how foolish, how iniquitous, how wicked. And yet, Lord, how patient thou art with us. Lord, thou didst pity us. Thou didst see our plight and condition. Though, Lord, we bear the marks of that curse, yet nevertheless, Lord, there are so many mercies and kindnesses and opportunities along life's pathway. And we thank thee, Lord, that thou didst call us, O oh Lord, with that irresistible call, that thou didst humble us, for, Lord, our pride would never have submitted of its own to thee. O oh Lord, and thou didst open our eyes to see our, how foolish we had been, O oh Lord, to grasp and understand the real meaning of life, its purpose, and, O oh Lord, to recover that relationship with thee, O oh Lord, that it was reprieved, that it was... Uh, Redeemed, O oh Lord, that we have been rescued from eternal death, from the mortal death and from the death of our souls. And Lord, when we consider that prospect which is ours, we are overcome. For Lord, more than paradise, more than Eden is ours in that future and glorious state. Help us then, Lord, to have a right perspective on our lives. For Lord, though we are privileged, though we have had so much light and help along the way, Nevertheless, Lord, we are but weak flesh and blood, and we are easily downcast or discouraged, and clouds, as it were, roll over, and we forget thy glorious purposes, and we can only see our problems and difficulties at times. O oh, Lord, help us at such times to have faith, Lord, not to heed the impulses of the flesh, not to listen to the counsel of this fallen world, but, Lord, to flee to the Scriptures O oh Lord, to cleave to thy promises, to know that our God is a, a, a rock and a fortress to us, is a great shepherd over his sheep, and he will let none perish. O oh Lord, give us such insights and views, for we know ourselves too well how easily we would wonder. So guard our hearts, Lord, keep us to be a praying people, keep us to be a faithful people. May we be those who do not depend on feelings and emotions, but, O oh Lord, within our very being, that we would cleave unto Thee. And, Lord, surely at such times Thou wilt draw nigh unto us. Thy Holy Spirit will comfort us and bless us and restore us. O oh Lord, we pray with the years that we have that we might serve Thee, that we might serve Thee with a glad spirit. O oh Lord, not merely out of duty or habit. We pray, Lord, that we would make a difference wherever we are placed whatever is our lot or portion, that we might be uh, an example and a help 
and never a stumbling block to our brethren. Oh Lord, we pray for great patience, for we often need this, for long-suffering, for a forbearing spirit. Oh Lord, help us to be those who are kindly and gentle and genuine and sincere. Lord, we ask for these things, for we know so often we lack them or have them in such small and meager measure. Lord, we pray that thou wouldst bless those who are laid aside, those who are afflicted, those who are weak in the flesh and unwell. Do bless any treatments, restore and help them, we pray. But Lord, we know even from the scriptures, whatever thy will is for us, may we be content. May we learn to be content. May we know that we already have all things. And Lord, we pray again for the churches of our land. We pray for revival. Oh Lord, we pray that thou hast awaken uh, the people of God in our day. Lord, that though the numbers are few, though the world is against us, oh Lord, such has it ever been. We have always been that peculiar people, that little flock. But may we not be cowed or afraid, but may we go forth not in our own strength, but with the banner of our Savior. Oh Lord, presenting him to this age, to this generation, as we have opportunity and as thy providences give to us. We pray for family members who are not believers. And we pray for those who have heard the gospel often, perhaps, who know it well, but, Lord, who have gone their own way. Lord, we remember them, for thou dost surely remember them. Thou dost know them. Draw them back, we pray, and help us to be uh, earnest prayers for them, even if it is over the years of our lives. We do commend such to thee. And we pray for pastors, grant them great wisdom, Lord. May we be those, may there be those who divide the word of truth faithfully and honestly. May there be no portion of scripture that is not applied, for it is all thy word, it is all thy truth. May we live for thee, we pray. Lord, we pray again for this church, for this chapel and place, and pray that thou wouldst preserve it into the coming weeks and months, even of this year. We pray for those who will take the pulpit here, uh, those from this fellowship and others who will visit. Oh, Lord, bless them even as they uh, come before thee, as they seek their, their ministry, their texts. Lord, be with them. And overrule, we do pray. And Lord, we pray uh, for ourselves this evening that thou would speak to us. May there be a word for each one of us. May there be a help for us. We thank thee again that this is no mere academic exercise, but that we speak with and meet with our God through the reading of the scripture, through the application of its truth, and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Be with us, each one, in this coming week and in the coming days, and grant us much joy and peace in believing. For we ask all of these mercies in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our next hymn is number 307. Hymn number 307. O Spirit of the living God, in all thy plenitude of grace, where'er the foot of man hath trod, descend on our apostate race.
Ecclesiastes. As I said, and as I'm sure we all know, this book written by Solomon. And we're going to look at a section from, uh, well, all of that we read, hopefully. And I believe that this is a block of related thoughts. There's a structure which gives a beginning, a starting point, uh, the first point being the infinity and the unsearchableness of God. We cannot scrutinize or grasp him. And then uh, Solomon comes to some of the issues that uh, apparently troubled him to some extent, how there seemed to be uh, the uh, same uh, outcome, whether you're a believer or whether you're not righteous, and this could potentially trouble us. Then the section we get to is our Christian response, how we ought to live. And then finally, we're reminded that our time is limited, and we're to use that time very wisely. This passage and section, I hope, helps us to put our lives in that eternal context. Uh, As Christian people, we know that we're but here for a season. Time passes by very soon, and uh, we're to see our place and our opportunities whilst we have them in this life to glorify God. We benefit greatly from this book of Ecclesiastes. I know at times it might seem a little obscure, uh, some of the language a little bit difficult, to navigate through, but uh, it's not really if we give it due attention and its truths are very helpful to us and uh, not at all as obscure as we might imagine if we just spend a little time going through, uh, which is what we do this evening. We benefit also from Solomon's great God-given wisdom because this is essentially what we have here. Remember that he was the wisest man that lived, uh, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, He was commended for asking for that gift of wisdom. He said he was as a child when he was to take up the crown after the death of David. And uh, so the Lord gave him that wisdom. We know too well, though, that uh, he didn't maintain that faithful walk. He departed from God. He entered into the world. And uh, much of this book, really, is a reflection of those experiences, his observations, the lessons that he learned. And so, though he fell, uh, nevertheless, we have on record what he'd learned. Uh, Of course, he retained his wisdom, as far as we understand it, even though he departed from God. And so he was able, as perhaps no one else, to scrutinize and analyze and weigh up and evaluate life itself with its multitude of experiences and to uh, assess its value its point and purpose. And of course, that oft-repeated refrain, we see some of those terms in the reading we had, vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So you might think this is a rather dismal book, a fatalistic book. What's the point? But really, that would be a most superficial reading because so often he tells us the point. And the lesson is that without God, if you miss the purpose of life, then it is vain. It is absolutely pointless and uh, nonsensical. And uh, after all, we have to face the living God and the judge of all the earth. And so, sadly, tragically, mankind misses the point of life itself without grace. But we'll begin to look then at some of these sections. The first one uh, really is about the infinity of God and our finite understanding. And it's set out there in verses 16 and 17 uh, of chapter 8. And uh, it reads, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth, that was his mission, 
for there is for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes. I think that means that it was an incessant, continuous quest. He was ever probing, looking, thinking throughout his life. And then this was his conclusion. Then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. So ordinary men, they won't really understand the purpose of life. Yea, further, though a wise man think to know it, yet he shall not be able to find it. And that's very profound and simple at the same time. Solomon was such a wise man. He was exclusively or superbly equipped for this mission and task. But he had to conclude that without God's light, he couldn't understand it either. And that really, what do we learn from that? We learn the point that uh, there, are, there is so much that we must take on trust. Not blind trust. The Christian faith is about being persuaded on good grounds, with good arguments, with evidences, so that the case is made powerfully and irrefutably that there is a God who made the, all the earth. He is holy and pure. We have sinned. We need redemption. All of those things are plain. But there are certain things that are simply beyond our grasp. It's inevitable. It's the nature of man, isn't it? We are finite, and God is infinite. And so that when we are persuaded, and when there are many things, even in the Christian life, even though we might be scholars of the Word of God, there will be aspects that we cannot see. They're kind of beyond the horizon of our understanding. But the point we can take from this is we needn't trouble ourselves unduly about that because the wisest of men can't understand so what do we get from that we leave it in the hands of our heavenly father he knows he is fully in charge there's nothing that he misses and uh, we accept that uh, where faith uh, faith covers those things which cannot be grasped with reason so there it is we must not insist on explanations for everything that's the cynical spirit. That's the unbelieving heart. It's not an intelligent mind that keeps saying, well, I won't believe, I won't believe, unless I see evidence. And then you show the evidence, and then there's another set that's demanded, and then another set, and it's never-ending, because faith is absent. And so that's a point we could take from this. And perhaps a related point is this, that in the world, man, is, his pride blinds him from accepting the truth of God. This probably applies to the whole theory of evolution. And uh, apart from the fact that what it really is is a great smokescreen to hide away the fact that there's a pure and holy God with whom we would have to deal if we admitted and acknowledged that there was a creator, then, of course, there's the great moral implication. And I think we mostly agree, probably all agree, that that's one of the great reasons why uh, creation is rejected. But I think another one is something to do with intellectual pride. And so man is saying, well, if I don't understand it, if it's beyond my grasp, then it's inadmissible. It can't be accepted because we can't understand it. So by default, we humans are the highest pinnacle of evolution. And if it's uh, outside of our thinking, then it's, uh, it can't be admitted. It's not science. And so they haven't understood this point that they will never find the truth. 
by inquiry. Not that we shouldn't be probers and inquirers and learners. Of course not. That's in our nature. So that's set, if you like, as a, a kind of opening situation. That's how it is. Uh, and then uh, Solomon goes on in his considerations, and he began to look at how people live their lives and what happens to the unbeliever and the believer. And he appears to be saying that there's no real difference. Verse 9, for all this I considered in my heart even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. And really that's a, although it seems a little obscure, it's a comforting verse. Again, Solomon is saying, don't worry. These things are in the hand of God. The righteous and the sinners, all are in the hand of God. And then uh, he goes on in verse 2 to say, all things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, and he begins to make a difference. But the point is that there is a difference. Don't miss that. All through these verses, there is a, there is a distinct distinction between the two categories of men and women. Some are righteous. Don't miss the point. Some are believers. And that's not to be lost. He's not just saying it doesn't make any difference whether you believe or not the same thing is going to happen to you. Well, he is saying that. But ultimately, what he's also saying is, yes, many of the same things will happen to you as happened to the world has happened to unbelievers. Uh, and just because you're a saved person, you're a Christian, doesn't exempt you from many of the woes and difficulties and upsets and trials and hurts. You're not spared them necessarily. We certainly have much help. We certainly have the counsel of God and the comfort and the peace. But that doesn't spare us. And uh, so we can pick that out. But he goes through this in verse 2. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked. So he makes a distinction, as I said there, to the good and the clean. And, and Solomon acknowledges that. Yes, some men are good, made good, declared good, cleansed from their sin. And to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth, and to him that sacrificeth not. He who sacrificeth understands Calvary, understands atonement, believes and recognizes that man by his own efforts and endeavors cannot please God. Blood must be shed. Life must be lost. And so, as I say, don't read this in a kind of fatalistic way. Uh, as is the good, so to the sinner. And these distinctions are made throughout. The good and the sinner. No one is good except by the merits of Christ. And he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. So the one that sweareth has no respect for the commandments of God. No loyalty to the truth of God. And in verse 3, this is an evil among all things that are done under the sun. There is one event unto all. And he seems to be saying, well, this is evil, outwardly speaking. To the onlooker, it seems strange that uh, one event happens to the just and to the unjust. Oughtn't the people of God to be spared these things might be the implication. But then he goes on to speak of the sinner. 
And really, this is a, a tremendous analysis of someone who is away from God, who lives his own life. And uh, we're to learn lessons from these things. But just uh, before we proceed into that verse, what lessons do we learn from that distinction, that comparison? Well, we do not seek one lesson or application is we do not seek justice and equality here. We don't demand our rights now. It might seem unfair that one thing happens to a believer and an unbeliever alike. It might seem often that the person who lives for himself and away from God prospers more than the Christian. But we don't see that as unfair. And we don't complain. We might be mistreated, but we trust God. God sees all. Another application, well, I've mentioned this already, really, that we're not spared hardship and difficulties and sickness and trials. But really we come to verse 3 because the ungodly lose everything. So though that they might have an equivalent life outwardly, they might appear to do as well as anybody else, maybe better often, in an earthly, secular way, Yet their lot is a precarious one. Uh, And uh, it says halfway through there in verse 3 of chapter 9, Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. And Solomon goes on, And madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Well, that is dismal. That, that's, uh, Solomon concludes this section not by speaking about the righteous, but the sinner. So now the difference is being made apparent. Now the difference is seen. Whereas we might have thought uh, in our f- weakness, in our weak moments, well, what's the virtue of being a Christian? Why is it so different and blessed? Actually, it's harder. We're ostracized. We're We're not uh, respected. We're not recognized. (coughs) Look at the end. The heart of the sons of men is full of evil. And madness is in their heart. You see, it's not a sane position to live as if there was no God. You can't, can't make sense of the word. It's a kind of folly to live out your life without giving any consideration for why you're here in the first place. For why you have a sense of God, why you have a conscience. You haven't taken account of those things. (coughs) And that'll be a kind of madness. You might think of the account of the Lord Jesus when he delivered the Gadarene demoniac, the demon-possessed man there. And you know it well, I'm sure. How that he found that man, in another account there were two men, possessed of spirits which made him cut himself and wail and how? And he wandered among the tombs. You know the account, don't you? They chained him, but they couldn't keep him. But with his encounter, when he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, and he bowed before him, and the spirits were cast out, what do we find? What does it say at the end? He was sound, sat at the feet of Jesus, and in his right mind. It was the recovery of the mind. You see, the unbeliever although that was a dramatic and extreme example of that demon-possessed man, in a measure, all people have a kind of madness. This is what Solomon says here. Madness is in their hearts. And then they go to the dead. 
They can't take anything with them. It's all been in vain. That is the vanity of vanities that Solomon speaks about for the unbeliever. But there's a gospel point that now follows. We need to heed it. And in verse 4, To him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, it's a, a wonderful proverb and an observation. But the point is simple. As long as you're alive, there's hope for you. You can be reasoned with. You can be spoken to. You can hear of the Savior. You can have your sins forgiven. You see, you might be just as a dead dog, uh, rather a dog, but a dead lion is no good to anybody. What does that represent or mean? Well, the lion is majestic, isn't he? Powerful, the king of the jungle. All fear him. All respect him. He commands the territory, the plains over which he roams. He hunts, and animals flee from him. He's the great one. But when he dies, he's just a carcass. And the vultures pick at that carcass. And his bones are left strewn, a dead lion. And so I suppose the point here is that if you live your life without Christ, without forgiveness of sins, no matter what you achieve, rather like the lion, no matter what preeminence, power you might yield and wield, wealth you might accumulate, respect, and all those other things. If you haven't found God, you're a dead lion. It's pointless. It's gone. So there is a gospel message here. And Solomon really uh, enlarges on this in the next verse. For the living know that they shall die. That's the advantage. Why is the living? Why is the living a dog? But the living know this, that they will die. Well, he's not just making a very obvious Observation. Anyone knows that? No. This is Solomon. This is the inspired scriptures. The point he's making is that there's opportunity and they know that death is coming. The consequence, the penalty of sin. And uh, that's why they have that difference. And uh, we can reach out to them. And we can plead with them. And we can point them to the Savior. So... Uh, that's the second section, if you will, Solomon's observations about the apparent similarities and then the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. But then now comes the most positive section, most beautiful verses that follow. We find them sat here, placed here within this chapter and this portion. And in the context of what Solomon has already said, the infinity of God, the plight of the unbeliever, the injustice that we might perceive incorrectly. And so rather than troubling ourselves about those issues, apart from having a gospel heart, then this is what we ought to do. Has Solomon simply changed the subject now? I don't believe so. So he says, having heard all of those things, what do you do, believer? What's your responsibility? Are you going to be troubled, complaining about the unfairness, are you going to be looking into issues that are beyond your thinking? As the scripture says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts than the earth, your thoughts, it says in Isaiah. We can't comprehend those things. We're not to overly trouble ourselves about things that are 
outside of our reach. And so here is what we are to do. Verse 7, go thy way. Get on with thy business. Live your life. Eat thy bread with joy. With happiness. Drink thy wine with a merry heart. That's the commandment. That's the instruction for the believing people. To live in a positive way. Yes, all around us, there are things that are difficult, heart-rending, unjust. We're not turning a blind eye to any of it. But in the midst of it all, and of our duties, and of our gospel work, in our hearts, we're to be joyful people. And uh, we're to live with a merry heart. And we can think, I think anyway, of Psalm 23, where uh, David says there that the Lord preparest a table for me in the midst of my enemies. Prior to that, the verse says that he had walked through the valley of the shadow of death, but thy staff and thy rod, they comfort me. And uh, there it was. He was surrounded by enemies, aren't we? Surrounded by opposers, unbelievers, discouragements on every hand. But can we be like David and sit down to a meal with our Heavenly Father? He's prepared it for us. He's prepared food for our souls. And uh, our cup runneth over. Can we say that? Or will we succumb to the complaints which so easily come our way? And uh, there it is. Eat thy bread with joy. Drink thy wine with a merry heart. For God now accepteth thy works. You see, really, this is not difficult at all. He accepts thy works. If he was a pessimist, as you might read this, a fatalist, he would say, what's the point of doing anything? But God sees you, and he accepts your works. Of course, works cannot earn us salvation. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, they're accepted for merit, for salvation, for worth. He has given us that life. But these are works of fruit, aren't they? And uh, James 2.18, the passage there, expounds this in some detail, but just this. James 2.18 says, And I will show thee my faith by my works. So we need to be busy for the Lord. We need to be doing what we can. And what an encouragement that he accepts those meager offerings. They're always not what they could be, are they? They're never perfect. But they're fruits now of faith. They're evidences of inner life, aren't they? Uh, and that's a great comfort to us. And in our difficult times, and in this dark world... He goes on to say in verse 8, Let thy garments be always white. Keep yourself pure as much as you can, unspotted from the world, pure. And present yourselves with a, a settled, contented disposition, a happy heart, not a superficial, false smile and laughter, but genuinely because you understand your riches. And let thy head act 
lack no ointment. So oil is a picture used often in the Bible for blessing in different ways, actually. But uh, we can think again of Psalm 23. Thou anointest my head with oil. This is an evidence of God's favor to us and blessing and provision. So let us ex- receive it. Let us put our, ourselves in the place of it. Then he goes on to give us some applications. You see, this block of verses here is so practical for us. And he speaks about our relationships. So verse 9, live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun. But let's think about that. This is about fidelity. This is about loyalty. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity. And we might stop there and think, but hold on a minute. Who's giving us this counsel? This was Solomon. Surely one of the most unfaithful men in the scriptures anyway. We read in 1 Kings 11, verse 1, But King Solomon loved many strange or foreign women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. That was his only wife, his first wife. And then women of the Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites, Zidonians and Hittites. And in verse 4, For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. Finally, verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord God of Israel which had appeared unto him twice. So Solomon had to experience the anger of God, the discipline of God, because he had been disloyal, because he had abandoned that relationship. And so it's precious, and uh, he reminds us of it. But it's not just that we're to be loyal, but we're to live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity. So this is a relationship that must be maintained and nurtured and uh, valued all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee. And implied in there is that he's given you that spouse, that close one. If you're not married, then other relationships and loyalties also will apply. But we support that institution And uh, the Lord has given you that and your life. You see the positive applications now that Solomon is making for us in the midst of what might seem to be otherwise quite deep and dark observations about life. And uh, there it is. We're not to abuse it. And this is the portion in thy life also. For this is the portion, it says halfway through, the portion. This has been apportioned to you. This is what God has given to you. It's not just a random arbitrary distribution. God has superintended our lives and watched over us and put us where we are and in the labor which thou takest under the sun. Then a separate point of counsel for us. Verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with Thy might. Well, again, that's not fatalistic, is it? Make every effort 
whatever thy hand findeth to do. So in secular work, in family business, but especially in the Lord's work, do it with all your might, with all your energy, willingly. And then really the time signature comes in again. And uh, Solomon is ever mindful of the brevity of life. It's said that he wasn't, well, in our way of thinking, not such an old man, but possibly only about 55 at this point, and he died at around 60, we're told. But he was in the last years of his life. Because then he goes on to say, For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. He's simply saying, time's limited. You haven't got all the time in the world. Use it wisely. It's a gift. It's an opportunity. And uh, when it's gone, there are no further opportunities for service. And the Lord Jesus Christ says as much himself. John 9.4, he says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Well, he's the example for all of us, isn't he? And so really, just as we look at the concluding verses, that block, as I said, is so beautiful, so practical, so positive. And I think it's relevant for us in our day and age and in the recent times that we're coming through. Let's not be distracted, taken away by other things, over-troubled, over-anxious, over-involved, committed to things that are really going to pass by before very long. They might seem to be urgent and prominent right now, but in a few months and few years they'll be gone. But our purpose is to serve the living God. And so he concludes that uh, we're all going to be taken home one day. He reminds us in verse 11, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. But maybe we could think of uh, in 1 Corinthians, there are not many mighty, not many great. The small things of the world, the things that are not. We who are obscure, perhaps, Christian people, we're often the ones that will be blessed. Neither yet bread to the wise, that is wise in their own eyes, wise in terms of this world's wisdom. <coughs> they won't ultimately receive blessing. <clears throat> nor yet riches of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. And that includes us. <coughs> and then he makes this final illustration to make the point. For man also knoweth not his time. And that's us. Christian people, non-Christian people. As the fishes that are taken in an evil net, as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time, when it falleth suddenly upon them. Those fishes, those birds, just about their business, just following their instincts, they had no idea that a net would take them this day. They had no idea. I'm supposing fish think, I'm sure they don't very much, except about instinctual things or birds. But they didn't see it coming. They didn't know the time. And it's the same with us. And Paul says this, this very point in First Thessalonians 5.2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. And so Solomon is just concluding by saying, there it is. That's our life. 
It's passing by. But in the midst of it, let's be busy. Let's be joyful. Let's accomplish what we can. Let's give all, all our energies to the work of God. We'll soon be home. And uh, let's not be overly troubled by all those other deep and perplexing things that surround us. Keeping that single eye and single focus. Well, I think that's enough for us this evening. Thank you. conclude with uh, our final hymn, which is number 98. Hymn number 98. Thy mercy and thy truth, O Lord, transcend the lofty sky. and communion of the Holy Spirit rest and remain with each one of us now and forevermore.